Okay. Uh, welcome to Fruiting Body Podcast with your host, Brendan O'Neill. We've brought back Colin McKay today. Um, this is by popular demand. Um, we're going to continue talking about the history of Phuket on this episode. Uh, I think we left off around the 1820s, and we're going to be discussing more how Phuket became Phuket when the Chinese came in and exactly what was happening in that era. Uh, we'll pretty much move up until the end of World War II, but at that point, as we all know, that's when the tourists arrive and there's not much more information there. So without further ado, over to Colin. Let's take it away and we're going to jump right into it. Um, we don't really need to recap it. If you want to watch the first episode, click here. I don't know. We'll throw something in there and you can go watch the first episode. And uh, yeah, we'll take it away. Okay, thanks, Colin, for joining us. Um, let's just jump right into it, back into your book on the history of Phuket. And if you can uh, take it from, I guess, the 1800s, as we were discussing before. Sure, okay. Um, right, got my, got my thoughts. Um, okay, what we talked about before was the, the Thai period. And let's, let's move the mic. Is the mic good? Is that enough? Just down? Okay, that's good. There we go. All right, yep. Yeah, so we um, we talked about the Thai period. So roughly, you know, the, just to recap, it was Indian, and then um, the Malays were here, and they were they became Indianized, and then eventually the Thais moved down from the north. Um, they took over Nakhon Si Tamarat, which is the main town in the peninsula, um, Phuket Island, which was a tin trading. It was known as the the tin island in the the satellite state. And it produced a fair bit of money from tin trading. And the Thais ran it, the Thai kings ran it, and nothing really changed here from, uh, for about 500 years socially. Um, there was, I'd say, 30,000, 40,000 people doing agriculture, tin mining. Um, things did start to change um, around the 1830s. We talked about uh, the British appeared. They took Penang, and then with steamships, they cleaned out the pirates. Yeah, and that, yeah. Prior to that, um, there was very little trade because as soon as you, if you went to mine tin anywhere outlying, the pirates would come and get you and steal you as slaves and sell you, um, take you off to Indonesia and sell you or sell you further down the coast. But when the British cleared out the pirates, um, the Chinese, who were, there was overpopulation in China, the, South China at the time, and they, you know, Chinese love to do business. Thais didn't want to do business. They do agriculture. Uh, only the women tended to deal with money. Uh, men, it was too lordly, too lordly to deal with money. So they just watched their crops grow and, you know, they, they were more a military sort of race. Um, so the Chinese came up and started doing commerce. And word went out, they'd already arrived in, in um, Penang and had started mining tin in the northern Malay states. And there were some big tin mines going by then. And then word came out that there was tin in Phuket, uh, particularly in, uh, it was known as, as Talang then, the whole area, or Salang, or Junk Salang as it was known, Junk Salon. And that would have been like the Malay language at that time. Uh, yeah, it came from Ujang Salang, yeah. which is the, the promontory of the Salang people. We went through that. Yep. Um, but a Phuket is a mountain in, in Malay. So it was also known as um, the... Katu and the high parts of the island, the mountain, were known as the Bukit part. 
So it was in Katu that they first started finding the big gold, uh, big tin mines. Right? And could pe people look this up today? Does this mountain, that name, still exist in Malaysia? To understand, yeah, if you you know, in KL, one of the main party areas is Bukit Tinggi. It's the Tinggi Hill. Interesting. So uh, Bukit is there's Bukits all over in in Mal Malaysia, and also in Indonesia. Bukit is a is the, this is the the Malay word for mountain? Yeah, or hill. Or hill. Yeah. Okay. So um, it was known as Hill Island because it is a very mountainous island. Um, and the, the ties didn't really go in there because it was thick jungle and they were, they were doing their rice farming in the Talang, the flat areas. So there were three main towns. There was um, Bandon, there was Tarua, which means harbour, the port town where the Herons Monument is. Yep. And, and then Bandon and Lip, Ban Lipon were the three main towns. Where's Ban Lipon? Ban Lipon is... Um, if you carry on north from, well, if you get to modern Talangtan today, it's basically before that on the right. Um, if you cut in right, there's a town in there. All that agricultural area was where. Yeah, they I'm did. familiar with Bang ban Dong. I, I, it's like Bang Dong is yeah. That was more rice and um, it's flatland for rice. Yep. Ban Lipon was more the or orchard area because you're going into the foothills there. Uh, it's still today. You you know I run with the Hash House areas. There's orchards of durian and. Rambutan and everything, okay. uh, Ban Lipon. Um, yep. And then Tarua was the sort of commercial town. And there wasn't much else. There were some Malay settlements around the coast. And then the um, Chinese figured out that there was huge deposits of tin. And uh, just to recap, the tin, when the land folded here, uh, the tin is in the granite. And as the mountains deteriorate, the tin settles in basins. So if you know the whole of Katu, which is now all, almost all golf courses built around lakes, they were all tin mines. Yep. Um, all of that. Um, so how do you get into Katu? The only way in was what is known as Klong Banyai, which starts in Sapanhin, and it runs right through Phuket Town. It crosses the main road by the Tesco, you know, and crosses yep. there and heads all the way up until if you play in the golf courses in Katu, you'll see the rivers all joining in there. And that, going up the river was the only way in. Right? It was the, so you took boats up the river. So um, the Thai governor at the time, he was quite happy to have these Chinese coming in mining because he could tax them for tin. Uh, and he also used to take a, a fee for them coming. They had to pay, um, they got a beeswax stamp um, and they had to pay one baht to come in. So he, mm -hmm. So ships were coming up the river as far as, I don't know if you know the old post office in Phuket Town. No. Okay, they, they were coming up to where, um, you know, the clock tower? Yes. Right. It, just in there was the main ferry, the main pier where people got off. And that's why old Phuket Town is based a few roads back from there, right? So um, that started as a base and people were there selling picks and shovels and, and people cooking tofu. And these so this is kind of the, the kickoff entry point through this clock. Yeah, you had to, to get pay to the tax and then, yeah. you know, the, the different... What happened was there was actually... Um, Can you, could you still take those clongs today as like a tour if you, you wanted could, to? You but, could, but, you know, they've, a lot of them have been, um, um, what do you call it, uh, because of all the digging, they've got much mm. shallower. And Klong Bang Yai is, is basically um, a sewer now. Okay. I mean, you know, you wouldn't want to, but you could. Yeah, you could take a boat up there in rainy season. Um, so 
what happened was um, the the governor at the time, and I forget his name. Uh, and we're still is, around the eight, 1820s, uh, 1850s? Is, yeah, 18, 1830s, 1840s, when it became safe to come here. Um, okay. Even coming up here on a ship, you were going to be attacked by pirates. So once the British took out the pirates, the Chinese from Penang, who were British citizens with British protection, um, started coming up here and mining um, and setting up these mines. And... They then started writing back, and they were all from Amoy province. Um, that there was two main guys who came here first and set up a deal with the governor saying, we'll bring a lot of Chinese, you make us the tax farmer, you give me the mining rights, and we'll bring the people and we'll start mining. So then they got their cousins and brothers from their village. Where were the Chinese coming from in China, mainly? Uh, they, were all, um, they were all coming from, uh, at first, almost all of them came from a place, Amoy, which is... Um, um, it's like, just further up the coast from Hong Kong, and, and in a bit, it's um, Hokkien, uh, not Hokkien. Um, it's like yeah, so Hokkien. It's, you're getting. Like I used to live in Shenzhen. That's why. So okay, it's so you got to like, go up the coast about like Huizhou. Um, no, go to the next. It's Amoy. Is the, Amoy. It's the okay. It's the province, right? Yep. And there was there's one town in there that basically fed most of the families who came here, and they came down as single men. So they started in you know taking on local wives. And then you get these half-breed families going, and then they separated, and and but they were always quite lordly. So you got these half tiny Chinese ties coming. Um, well, they started setting up huge uh, mining sites in Katu, and this was generating serious wealth. So increasingly, the center of operations were, were, wasn't in Telang. Where, I mean, what could you take in tax from the rice farmers? Some rice. That was about it. Whereas he could set up and collect tin and, and make more money. So he moved down to set up his base, the governor, in, in the town in the Phuket area. And it became Phuket Town or Hill Town. Um, and it became Phuket Town. Um, <clears throat> the town, the Chinese being much more industrious than the Thais. Um, the Thais were making the food for them, growing the food for them. They were just thousands of them came in. Because it was literally, you dig the ground, you wash it out, you get tin, you sell it for make money. I mean, and they had the experience from Penang, so they know exactly yeah, what they Yeah, it's not a lot of experience. I mean, they get more and more sophisticated equipment. Um, it was really, you know, they were just digging and washing it, digging, washing it. If you, got, um, if you got some water and you got a piece of log and you put sackcloth or some ridges in and you poured the soil down with water, the tin being heavier would, would gather into the sackcloth. You empty the sackcloth, you get a tin of this stuff. You take it to the smelter, the smelter, you know, with blowpipes, get a heat up, and then you get a bar of tin. Um, and that was worth a lot of money in those days. So it was a very easy way to make money. Um, and I don't the, say were the Chinese bringing the tin back on ships back to China, or were they selling it around Southeast Asia? Um, they were selling it uh, here, right here. And, and at that at that time, primarily, what was the tin being used for ships? Was it for buildings? <clears throat> um, tin, tin was, um, it had a massive expansion in the, about the 1850s. Before that, most, look, tin is used, uh, first of all, in bronze. That was why it's historic use. Um, the good thing about tin is it doesn't um, erode and it doesn't um, oxidize or erode. So, you know, you have tins of food, right? Uh, that's another thing. In the Napoleonic Wars, they started in the 1780s, 1800s. Napoleon realized you could pack food rations for troops in tins. 
And so all the armies of Europe started using tinned food. And then afterwards, like when people settled in America, they were taking canned, canned food. So there was a big demand for tin. But the main thing was railways came. And on the rail lines, if you just had them as iron, they would just rust and rot. And so you had to cake them with this tin oxidization. So for all the railways were expanding. And in fact, anything that was um, engines, rail engines, anything that was exposed to the um, elements. So on a lot of ships um, and also in ships cannons, um, you, couldn't, you couldn't use a, a steel cannon on a ship because it would rust. So when you fired it, you would swab it. You know, you, you put the explosives in there. You swab it. When you put the next gunpowder in, if there was any rusty bits and a bit of um, an ember got caught, it would blow up and blow your yeah. arms off. So you had to have something that didn't erode. So you got this thing called gunmetal. Gunmetal is what all ship's cannons were used. And we're talking the 1840s, 1850s, 1860s, when you have, you know, 90, 90 uh, cannons on each side of each ship and thousands of ships. So it was used in anywhere where you needed metal exposed to the elements. Mm-hmm. You needed to, there's a word for it, and I've forgotten, is, is coating it with tin. And so the, the demand for tin went through the roof. Tin, most tin in Europe had previously been coming from, um, from um, Devon in England, uh, Cornwall and Devon, which was a big tin mining area. But they were running out of tin. And so suddenly the British, who were taking Malaysia... Is, is, the pro- is it anodizing? Is that the process? No. Um, uh, uh, it'll anyways, come to me. It'll okay. come to me. Uh, it's it's, it's tin, tin plating. Okay. Tin plating is the name. So um, also on, on the bottom of ships and everything, anywhere you, where you wanted iron, but you wanted it covered from mm-hmm. the elements, you used tin. You used to use copper. Copper also doesn't erode. So, but tin was much cheaper. And so suddenly you had all these supplies of tin coming from the Far East, from India, um, and it, it dropped the price in Europe. And so all the European mines couldn't really compete. And the Malay Peninsula and particularly the island of... Um, Bantan and Phuket became the biggest tin producers uh, in the world. And it brought huge amounts of money. So with that money, um, came there came a really good governor here in the 18, uh, 18, sorry, 1900s um, called Prior Rashida. And there was a lot of money at that point, but no one wanted to keep their money here because it was the wild east out here. I mean, mm-hmm. it, was, it wasn't run. There was no law and order. Uh, there was a lot of triads. So... One Chinese group, let's say the Hokkians, would be coming down, and then um, there would be the Hakanese coming, and they would form their own triads to make keep their own law and order. So the main mine owners would get together and say they'd have their private armies, so that if people were caught stealing the tin, they'd, they'd punish them. Um, they'd say those claims are mine. Get the hell off that land. There and was no actual law and order. At no, that. it was like the Wild West. Yeah. Um, there was, uh, there was a British governor who was coming, because the British had their eye on this island. They, they were ready to take it. So they kept sailing up from Penang and um, just said, you know, there's, there's like, you know, tw- 25 armed troops here and, and 50,000 wild Chinamen, you know, who were coming yeah. down. So there was whorehouses, there was gambling houses, there were, and Katu was a real wild town. It was called, it came from Get Ho, Katu. Um, and Phuket Town had its own mafia. And, and what, sorry, what did that mean? Uh, Ghetto is a, a Chinese word. I don't know what okay. it means, but get, uh, that's where Katu comes from, Ghetto in Thai. Mm-hmm. And so there was, um, but these were all um, Chinese 
Gongsi's. I don't know if you know Gongsi means um, business. Though well, they they oh. were um, family heritage centers. Um, so if you were um, a Tan, right? Mo yeah. Most all of them here were, were named Tan. So that's why you get all these Chinese ties now called Tan Tuit or Tan Wanat, or they're all beginning with Tan. But they, Meaning their last name, so people Yeah, because that. they were forced later yeah. when it became Thailand to take Thai names, but they all used Tan. And some of them who got different names were named by the king because the Chinese became the local lords per se, right? Now, <clears throat> ultimately, the Thais still kept control because if they ever got too out of hand, the local governor could contact Nakhon Sitamarat, who could contact Bangkok, and they could bring the army down and slaughter the Chinese if they wanted. Mm. So the Chinese, but the, meanwhile, the governor would just let the Chinese run it, do all their industry, collect the taxes, cream off most for himself, and send up whatever the king wanted. And in that way, it, it fast developed the island in the middle. And then they started, you know, Laguna, around all around, anywhere the low-lying was full of tin. So more and more settlements, the town where we live here in Chantelet mm -hmm. is a Chinese town. If you, if you drive through there, you see all the Chinese decorations. In actually, like... In the main street of Chantelet. Yes, and, yes. you know, you see all... They're all Chinese. Stuff. In the little gold shops. Like yeah, right yeah, here, they're all Chinese, the, the right? road going basically right to Boat Avenue. Yeah, there's a hundred years. It was a thatched road. It was... A, I've got a picture in it a hundred years ago in the book. Um, and, you know, they were mining in Tinlay. It was called Tinlay, the, which is now Tinlay Place, the party area, and, you know, Peppers and all that. Yeah. Um... They were the Tinlay mines. And so the governor would give out the rights to mine to these various people, and they would bring more and more of these Chinese coolies up. And they were indentured servants. And it was a hell of a life. I mean, can you imagine being out there digging all day, coming home, no air con, living in a hut? There was a lot of, well, whether there was malaria, there was certainly a lot of dengue. Some people say there's never been malaria in Phuket. Um, but there was cholera. There was It was a stinky, filthy unclean place and Chinese are even dirtier than you know the Burmese immigrants today they would leave their garbage everywhere there'd be rotting food people cooking tofu um, and I know the British governors when he came up um, and several of them just said they were overwhelmed by the stench of the the place just stunk it was a horrible unclean town right yeah what were they doing with their dead and <clears throat> well you know they were and even if you dig the ground here a lot I mean you get a bad smell so it was it was a hard life, but they got money in their pockets. They could work for a few years and go back to China, a rich man, right? But increasingly, you found more and more of them going, well, hold on, I can just get some land here and grow a farm or, you know, I'm, I'm falling in love with the Thai girl I'm with and why would I go back to China? I'm only going to get taxed. And in that time in China, it was illegal to leave China. So all these people leaving, if they actually went back, they were, um, you know, they could be in big trouble. Um, and the other, at the same time, there were people pet going there, like in the old days with the, um, you know, the British going to Australia. They were paying people their flights to come out. So mm -hmm. a lot of criminals and people who wanted to escape from China were coming down and working in the mines. So it was a real rough time. Um, and that went on, um, yeah, up until about the 1870s. They had big riots where they actually chased out the governor and the governor had to leave the Thai governor, um, who was at that time an Afghan, right? Because um, it was still Siam, remember? So this still was not Thailand. And Siam, 
belonged to the king. So the king would bring Indians, he'd bring Uzbekis in, he'd bring Turkish, he'd bring... To, to, to kind of... Well, uh, to run admin, so Chinese, because mm. the ties essentially didn't work. The ties were agriculturalists who could produce men for the king, for their armies, right? And as long as the king, yeah, mainly from the north, that's where the population is in Thailand, there were no people down here. So it would make sense that the king would make the local lord uh, Chinese or Indian because they were commercial people. And the Indians were coming, selling them clothes, and it was almost no ties here, right? Um, as I say, there was a census taken in the 1890s where it was like 90,000 Chinese and something like 2,000 Malays and about 900 Thais. It was entirely a Chinese island. Mm-hmm. Um, and <clears throat> the Chinese, the British um, started putting pressure on saying to the, to the Thais, look, you've got to let commerce run. Now, at that time, it was still a feudalistic society in Siam. That meant the king owned everyone. He, he, there was a, a system called Sak Dinar, which means... Uh, the power of your rice fields. So the king would award you, if I wanted to make you a baron because you had fought well in the last battle with the Burmese, I would give you um, a thousand rice fields, which is, if you trans that into Thai, um, it's the same as the capital of Laos. Is, uh, oh, Vien, la, la, Vien Tien? Yeah, Vien Chan, I think, is is a thousand rice fields or something. Ah, like that. that's the, the, like the, the word for that. Yeah, so everything was measured in rice fields. So you would be an eight rice field lord, and mm. you would then give out those rice fields to sublords, and they were beholden to you. And when it came time for the king to rustle up an army and say, okay, look, you've got to produce um, you know, two boats, two long-tail boats, or you've got to produce eight horse horsemen and 50 soldiers and bring your own food, you had to do that, or he'd take, he'd take your rice fields away. Uh, he'd bring the other lords and give you their, you know. So the king controlled all the way down by this Sak Dinar system. Um, so the king will say, well, all that tin's mine, right? Mm-hmm. And But he would then farm it to the local lord. He'd say, you can take, the, you send me this much. So the local lord here uh, would say, right, to the Chinaman, okay, I'll take this much and you keep the rest. So the smelter would pay like 20%, the... Um, uh, tax the um, importing it well basically people coming in to sell stuff had to sell to the king's agent first so mm. he'd be the only one on the dock to meet them so he'd say like i'll pay you this much and they go no it's worth that much they go sorry that's all i'm paying well they had no choice so they'd sell it for that much he'd turn around and sell it for this much to the chinaman right so they were creaming these guys and the chinese got pissed off and on several occasions we talked about the governor's house in Tarua, which is the oldest main structure. Um, he moved out of, um, of Phuket town to Tarua eventually because it was too wild. And he built this fortified court, courthouse, uh, which the Chinese also invaded and attacked, and he had to run to Bangna. So uh, the British started saying, look, um, they were in the process then of taking all the Malay states step by step. And the British were doing it in a way that you know, it was just as bad and corrupt, but they were putting this air of a white man's burden and we're going to civilize your nation, we're going to bring rules, and we want to bring uh, commerce. So they said to, to um, Siam, uh, okay, we're now talking about King Chulalongkorn, um, who's the, the famous king who reformed Siam. Mm-hmm. Um, 
they said to him eventually um a guy came down from henry bernie was the uh was the ambassador from hong kong the british ambassador britain had just taken hong kong from china they'd just taken burma right uh, they'd just taken all of india uh, they'd just taken all the malay states yeah, this, uh, but this is still getting into the late, later the, 1800s. Yeah, 1890s, yeah. 1880s, 18, 1870s, actually. And they're saying, look, um, the same as Perry did in Japan with the black black ships, he, he said, you've got to open up to commerce or we're just going to take you over. We'll just colonize you. It's up to you. I mean, it'll take us a few days to colonize you. Um, and so Henry Burney came down to negotiate and he said, you have to stop slavery. Because what slavery did, it, it denied a labor force. So, and we want the right, for example, to cut down all your hardwood trees. We want the right to sell all your sugar. We want the right to sell you any arms. We want the right, and then we won't colonize you. Because at the time, it was still, I, I, we covered this a bit last time. Yep. It was still the East India Company. And for the East India Company running it, they were a private company. They didn't want to put in magistrates and soldiers. And that's all on the, a red line. They just wanted to make money. So they used it. They loved to have little countries that they could just bully and um, take advantage of. Um, so they literally, they would bring a gunboat, you know, full of, they could blast you out the water and say, sign this or we'll, we'll take you over. So, um, and in a lot of the Malay states, the Malays, they just couldn't run it. So they said, I tell you what, you go and we'll give you this much money every year. You build yourself a big palace, you know, the Malay sultans and kings, and we'll put our advisor in and he'll run your economy for you and make you a lot more money because we know how to do business and um, we'll just pay you to do nothing. And, you know, your kids can go to, eaten and they can do all that you'll be high so um so they did that and they started doing that with the thai king i mean chilongkorn's kids started going to britain to oxford university remember he had hundreds of kids right yeah, or tens of kids uh, um so they bench henry Burmy bernie came down here and he, he sort of said like so this is as they're kind of moving up through the malaysia this the Malay well, peninsula yeah, they, they, moving they, the, into the guys in yeah. penang the east india center in penang which was the oldest center in malaysia was saying look it's an absolute shambles in thailand right uh, in siam um we're getting ripped off we can't go to work i'll give you an example for the siam the straits tin uh, which came out of singapore straits tin um they had new technology because there was new technology for mining that they were bringing, but the Chinese didn't want to know. They had their way. The Thais didn't want to make it. No one wanted to make any changes here. And the Brits are going, well, look, hold on, we can come in and, uh, with, with dredgers and mine this much quicker. Uh, moreover, we'll pay you money. There was no money then at that. We'll pay you money up front for your tin. We, we won't like take off, take off, take off your tin and leave you some tin. We'll pay you for your, for your ore. We'll smelt it quicker and better. Um, and they just were not allowed to do business. In fact, the, it was a private company set up in Singapore, Straits Tin. So they set up an office in Talang, in Phuket Town, and it was like a fortress. And they had these big Indian um, Sikh guards up there, um, and the guy, they, they couldn't make money. They should, by all rights, they were so superior in technology. And when he was questioned at the shareholders meeting in Singapore, there's a quote, exactly his quote from his letter he wrote. He said, the situation in 
Phuket, right? Now, Phuket province in Siam is one whereby we are more like the football and the Thai governing officials are the players, right? So, I mean, they were just... Yeah. So eventually the British said, look, you've got to make new contracts. They sent Bernie down. He sailed up the Chad Prai River with four ships. He sat down with Chula Longcorn and he said, you've got to stop slavery. You've got to give us all these rights. You can't keep taking taxes. You've got to drop all your taxes. You've got to open up your country to commerce. And, and at which point a lot of reforms came. So that's when you see modern Siam society starting so that they could th start things like a post office, schools, universities, well, not even universities, centers of learning. There was nothing. It was a feudal society before that. So in terms of like um, slavery, slavery, you're meaning that like the ties that were kind of uh, being controlled by the king and everyone rice, belonged to the king right so they they now they were open to start their own businesses and 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 be able to lead yeah like, they did it by saying you couldn't look look for example the old system was if i went cockfighting with you and you know i had this much tin and two chickens and i bet there was no money i said right i'll bet you my two chickens and these two tins and i lost them and i said right i'm doubling down put me in bondage right and I lose again, I'm now your slave, okay. right? For whatever the term of your agreement is. And these were honored, these agreements were honored. If you broke the agreement uh, as a slave, you were killed or, you know, because these slave owners owned the place. So they really enforced slavery. Um, or, you know, I'll, I'll let you have my wife for five years. You can do whatever you want with her. Um, and then he'd go cockfighting again. Cockfighting was a great generator of slavery. Um, so people could own each other. Um, and everyone was ultimately owned, the lords were owned by the king. The lords owned all the people in their province. Um, but more and more that it was made that as slaves died, you couldn't enslave their children. So mm -hmm. the children started becoming free. And eventually by 1905, slavery was um, abolished. Killed, abolished here. So what, that, what was the changing factor like in, in terms of... Uh, not just civilizing uh, Thailand, but growing its economy. As these children became enslaved, uh, what were they <coughs> doing well, in terms then, of business? Well, then the British companies and the German companies moving in could get employees and pay them money. So then you get things like, um, what did people do with the money they made from tin before? They all headed down to Penang and they bought property with it because there was law and order in Penang because the British were there. They didn't leave their money here because if you know you'd be broken into and you, all your tin would be stolen, or if you swapped it for gold or whatever, it would be stolen or you'd be killed. And there was no law and order, right? That the biggest triad guys would just come and take it. So even the triad guys, um, the lords would would have these fancy houses in Penang. They'd put all their kids into British schools there, so they were all English speaking here. Um, it was like a subcolony of Britain run from Penang. Um, and the Thai governor and the Thai government still controlled it, per se, um, only because the British didn't want to have all the administration in there. Mm -hmm. They just wanted to take the money out, right? So if they couldn't get laborers to work in the tin mines, that's why they brought the Chinese in, right? Um, well, I say oh, the Chinese came anyway. Um, the Chinese British brought the Chinese, their, their partners in. Mm -hmm. So, um, yeah, suddenly it became a very Chinese island. And then... Siam opened up to the West, um, to Britain. And then it was like, allow commerce, allow us to, you know, do your rice crop and do shipping and sell you 
they like Standard Chartered Bank moved up here from Singapore and opened up where the clock tower is. That was the first Standard Chartered Bank. Were there other things being traded as well? So I know we were primarily focused on the tin, but did the rubber plantation? Uh, no, they hadn't got here yet. Okay. Rubber hadn't got here yet. So uh, it, it first rubber came about 1905. So, um, yeah, you know, there was jungle products and there was they were growing a lot of ganja and weed here and they were selling that to Indians. Um, so, yeah, there was textiles. There was commerce, but not much, right? I mean, the tin was the be-all and end-all. Yeah. Um, and then you could sell them picks and shovels and, you know, whores and, and gambling uh, dens. And that, that's what they spent all their money on. But there was still no money, per se. They, they, were, they had finger bars of tin and they would cut that into smaller and smaller cubes. That's what they were using to be Well, until the Standard Chartered Bank came here and they said, look, I tell you what, we'll give you money. You bring us the tin, we'll put it in a hole and then we'll ship it down and we'll give you um, coins or eventually paper money. And so money started circulating, and that came, they first came. I'm trying to get the date right, but um, was this Thai money as, or was it still was it British it was British money? money. British money. British so money. in Thailand at this point, there was no currency, or was it? Um, look, the, the bat. I believe the bat was formed in in the 1920s or 1930s. Um, Siam Commercial Bank was the first Thai bank, which was formed by the king and some of his advisors. And they made their own currency, again, led by British advisors, telling them, if you want an economy to grow, if you want commerce, you need to have money. To have money, you've got to have banks. You've got to have depository. And so, of course, this look is kind of like Bitcoin world now. It's a new type of money. And people learned to trust it. And um, it was backed by the government. Um, it was backed by the British. And then eventually, what you saw here was the Germans, who only formed as a country in 1870 and were the strongest in Europe, the most powerful in Europe, but they didn't have colonies because the Portuguese, the Brits and the French and the Dutch and the Spanish had taken over the whole world already. So they were left going, right, we, we need some colonies. Um, what did they get? They got Namibia and Togo and Tanzania, just the butt-end places. They, the only one still left was Thailand, which was a gem of a place, and Japan, Right had not yet been colonized. Um, so they tried to come in and work with the king to take over. Uh, the British and the French gathered together and said, if you go any, like the German companies tried to take over Phuket. Um, they still exist today. They, they tried to buy Phuket from the king for cash mm. so that they could do the mining. Me Metallgeschaft was one, I think. Um, and the Brits said, no, 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 you can't have the German. This is our area. I and mean, the French were also ripping off Siam from the other side, from Indonesia, from the Cambodian side um, or Indochina side. Yeah. And that was when they decided, look, we'll just try and divide the country between us and stop the Germans coming in. At which point the British said, no, we don't, because they'd almost had a war up in with the French. So they completely stopped the Germans from coming in and having any control. Yeah, well, they didn't because the Germans were smart, right? They're smarter, they're smarter businessmen than the Brits and French. They came in and said, um, we'll subsidize your, you need railways. We'll pay, pay for all your railways. So the whole railway that comes down from Suratani and all that, and the British were like, hold on, we don't want a railway because they wanted to protect Singapore and their business. Uh, the British, the French came in and said, um, we'll undercut whatever the British are doing 
So eventually all the coal, and there was a lot of coal mining, I think it was at the time, um, all the rice, everything was being shipped on German ships. Mm-hmm. And they were stealing the business through commerce from the Brits. The Brits didn't like it, but they couldn't do much about it because they couldn't go to war. It was a commercial war, right? And so then the the, the Kaiser was inviting all the... Um, Chulalongkorn did a tour of Europe. Meanwhile, the Russians, as I said, were also interested in Phuket because they need a coaling station to go from the Baltic ran to, you know, particularly in 1905 in the war with Japan, they needed to get a lot more Navy over to the east side of, of Russia, to the Pacific. Yep. And they couldn't do it on one, they needed to stop somewhere to coal. And Phuket, as I say, was the only place in the whole Bay of Bengal that wasn't a British colony, Right. If you think about it, from yeah, or Dutch, right? With Sumatra, all Malaysia, Burma, all India, Sri Lanka, right? Um, and if you carry that on round, India, Oman, all down East Africa it was all British. So after the Suez Canal, they the only place they could stop was Phuket. So they then started buttering up the um, the king. So you see these photos; they're quite famous now of the Tsar and Chulalongkorn in Moscow. And the Germans, meanwhile, were saying, look, we'll, um, we'll bring your ch- sons and put them in our military college and we'll sell you your guns. Because they, they knew a war was coming. They knew a war was coming. And the Germans were trying to get the ties on their side. Um, anyway, the First World War did come. Prior to that, um, as I say, the Germans became dominant and the Brits were busy in Malaysia. The French were busy in, in Indochina. A, a Brits, there was a big lobby all the time saying, let's just join Malaysia with Burma mm-hmm. and just take this piece of land. And it's a lucrative piece of land. We can, it's miserably run by the Thais. So uh, the Siamese, if we put in British governors, we can make it a very prosperous province. We can put in roads, we can put in bridges, we can put in all the stuff you need for infrastructure. And so there was huge pressure and on several occasions, the British were about to take this place, but they were all stopped by for various other reasons by the British government. So it never it, it remained independent. And then, um, then we see the next big change is the First World War coming, and everyone was calling on I forget which king it was. It was uh, this Mon- uh, not Mon- Chulalongkorn, I think, was the king then. I, again, I'll, I'll yep. correct the numbers, but I think it was Chulalongkorn. And he said, look, we'll be, we'll be, um, what do you call it? We won't take sides. because Neutral. Yeah, we'll be neutral. So it became a real center for spying. You know, um, you know, there were, there were ships going off to Phuket to spy on India, German spies and uh, various, the Italians, no, they came in the Second World War. Um, Siam did okay out of it, but, but the British, when they won the war, they were very happy to uh, imprison all the all the German expats who were here and throw them out the country and take back all the business. So Britain recontrolled all the commerce in Siam. Now, increasingly, what you started getting in from the Chinese was a middle class, an independent middle class now, because the, the freed slaves and the Chinese marrying with local women were having freeborn children. Mm-hmm. who were beginning to get money and wealth and build nice houses. And they were going, we don't like this autocratic society where, remember, you couldn't even look at the king before. If you looked at the king, if he went past, you would have your eyes gouged out. Things like that were going on. So 
This is still the the world. It's Siam. It was still Siam, the kingdom of Siam, right? It's still almost the Wild West at this point. Well, I'm talking about all of Siam at this point. um, But but Phuket was part of Siam. So, um, yeah, so uh, the middle class started saying, um, and the, the, the place where people really jumped up in level was in the army. So free men could join the army, and if it was a meritocracy in the army, whereas in society it wasn't. You were either born rich, you were a lord class, or you were not, or you were a Chinaman doing business, or you were down. But then they got that blurred because now they're Thai Chinese who are Thai family and Chinese doing business with far more money than the rich lords because mm-hmm. they own you know a printing factory or whatever, and they're making more money than the guy with some orchards and rice fields. But his heritage and his position in society, in the old Thai society, which still continues today, right? There's a lord class. Um, but the middle class started banging on their ceiling. And the biggest meritocracy at that point was the army. So it was coming out of the military officers. Um, they were being sent overseas to train in Europe. They were picking up these ideas in the 20s and 30s in Europe of um, you know, communism, nationalism, like, why should it be a kingdom? We should become a country. Remember, all all European countries were kingdoms. And then after the Second World War, they all became national countries. Mm-hmm. And you got the rise of nationalism and Nazism. And it, the, the exact example was Turkey, which was the Ottoman Empire, like the Siamese Empire. Owned lots of different peoples, all run by the Ottoman king. But the Bulgarians and the Greeks, and they eventually all took their independence. And the Turks gave away you know, the Middle East, and, well, they were forced to because they lost mm. the war. But they kept the Turkish lands with the Turks, and they called it Turkey. The same time here in, in, in Siam, the, to preserve the, the main Thai areas, the king of Siam gave away the Malay states. He gave away the Burmese. He gave away Laos. He gave away, he didn't say gave away. He was forced to concede land. So... It eventually evolved down to a much smaller country, which was where the ties were. And then you got this guy came up. Uh, I'm going to just talk, break back a bit mm-hmm. to rubber, right? Yep. Because that affects Phuket. Um, rubber started in Brazil and, and also a little bit in West Africa. It's an Atlantic fruit, right? Um, and it, it was suddenly became popular, I believe, around the 1870s. It suddenly been, you needed it in the Industrial Revolution to cushion metals banging and you know rubber you need it's in massively used uh, especially for war as well particularly for armies and for yeah. running navies as well you need a lot of rubber in um and and so you got this area this friction going on in in um, brazil when you know there's horror stories of of the americans going in there and trying to make out huge areas of cutting down the forest and um enslaving populations and people trying to steal the rubber to take it to, like, Peru, the Spanish colonies. And the Brazilians were fighting on it. Meanwhile, there was a British guy. It's a, a bit of a, a, a wild story. But um, it said this guy went ashore with these high-heeled shoes. And every time he went back to the ship, he, he filled his heels of his shoes with rub, uh, rubber tree seats, mm-hmm. which is bullshit, right? I mean, it's a lovely story. that This guy, Wickham. Uh, uh, Captain Wickham stole all the rubber tr- rubber seeds. He took them back to Kew Garden in London, which was a greenhouse garden, and they developed them into 
something like 200 rubber trees in the greenhouses in Kew Garden. And they said, look, we can take these, the perfectly same in, in Ceylon, in Malay, in Singapore. So they were all shipped out in Sri Lanka. All the trees died. Um, in Singapore, 17 of these things survived. 17 shoots. That's survived. because you needed that same climate as Brazil. the same climate. Yeah. Uh, and so um, there was a guy called... Uh, well, he was known as Rubber Ridley eventually. I think his Nicholas Ridley was in charge of the the uh, gardens, um, the hortic, main horticulturalists of Singapore. And he realized the value of these trees. And he went around uh, parties with seeds, you know, and giving them out. And everyone thought he was crazy. But in Singapore, more and more people started growing rubber in the island of Singapore. And suddenly the rubber price went through the roof. And at that point, some of these British settlers in Malaysia said, well, hold on, um, I've got all this jungle, I'm growing durian, and they started cutting down and doing rubber. In 1915, this really, really good governor here who was um, Prior Rashida, who took over in Phuket Town and developed modern, you know, old Phuket Town. Mm -hmm. he, 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 he made the prison, he made the courthouses, he made, laid out all the streets, he, he implemented many things from like Penang. Um, he brought up all his architect friends from Penang. He was a Penang British family. Um, they became Thai eventually. They're using that as like kind of the foundation to. Yeah, and so they, he had houses in Penang, and he had all the the miners were here. Um, um, so that was again the the tan, the the core family. They were the cores. His father had started as a governor in Ranong, many, and they still have the big family grave site up in Ranong. And he was a very good governor who actually like paid his taxes on time, you know, as a, as a tax farmer. Um, he did things like, you know, um, build roads, and build bridges, and all the things the king liked, and all the things the British were demanding, otherwise they would take it over. Yep. So remember that the Siamese wanted to have English-speaking people who could deal with the Brits and civilize it enough to stop the British from taking it over. So the, the core family, or Korsimbi or Prior Rashida, he became the governor of Trang. Um, he had been the governor of another province. All, all his sons became governors of the province, and they were all really good governors, particularly this little guy. He was about three foot, four foot two, and he liked golf. So just across from your house here is the Surin Golf Course. It, yeah, it he, was. he started that one, right? Um, because, and there's pictures of him in his plus fours, and his, uh, you know, someone said he looks like a, a goose egg, one of the... The Brits were coming up here. It was a good place to come to do tiger hunting on elephant back. Mm -hmm. So they would come up for the weekend and stay in the new hotel, the, which was the, what's the fancy hotel? Um, right here? No, no, the On On Hotel. Down. It's now in, in Phuket Town. Okay. It's where they shot the beach and all that. It's a famous old Chinese hotel. So you could come up here as a Brit and, um, and basically come for the weekend on the steamship and... You know, you could play golf at Surin. You could go tiger hunting on out by elephant. You know, I'm sure there was bounteous women, and you know, like Soy Romani yep. was run by a Romanian woman, and it was a big hooker street in town. Um, so it was a good place for expats from Penang to come for a few days for the weekend, and so it was it was quite Britified, and the the rich um, Chinese ties would all go down there for the weekend and buy all the latest fashions from London and what lipstick. And, and which year was this around? Uh, this was basically going from 19, 1895 till 1940, right? Okay. Um, during that, these interwar years, 
it became quite trendy to come up here and have fun in Phuket for the for all the Malay, all the Malay Singaporeans. The steamer went from it went from um, Ranong, uh, sorry, um, capital of Burma, uh, Yangon. Yeah, or Yangon, Rangoon. Sorry, not Rangoon. It would come down to stop at one other stop above. Then it would stop at Phuket. Um, then it would stop at Penang. Then it would stop at um, um, Malacca, and then it would stop in Singapore. Yeah. And it ran constantly. So you had postal services. You had, and then planes started appearing. So they built the airport. So slowly it became into the modern world, and people were using money. When the rubber trees came, the Chinese were going, "Well, hold on. Um, we own all this land by rights, and only that bit produces tin." Um, they're going, we can, we'll buy a load of these rubber trees. Promoted, in fact, the, the, um, the governor himself upfronted money and bought a load from Singapore and brought them up and started getting locals to plant them. And sure enough, they realized you could sell this rubber. It was a huge spike in the price of rubber, especially during the First World War. They mm -hmm. needed it. So everyone started cutting down the jungle building rubber trees to get there every day. You needed roads and paths. And suddenly this thickly jungled island, which was full of, you know, um, black panthers and tigers. And, uh, you know, I, I don't think there were orangutans, but there might have been, but monkeys and pythons and spiders. You never even wanted to go in the jungle areas, right? Um, suddenly they, they were all cut. The animals were all eaten, I presume. And then you could, say, bring goats and chickens and... And but mainly rubber trees everywhere here is rubber trees. Um, and then that was starting around the after or before the first world that, war. That started here about 1915 okay. and got to a, well, it, the biggest peak year of production was about 1970, so it ran right through. Um, but rubber is what really opened up the whole of South Thailand, right? Because you could just destroy the jungle, and then they started getting palm oil, right? Became useful. So palm oil plantations also, you, you just take out the jungle and you put a road in and there are workers in there and workers' camps and, and the whole place opened up. Right? What were they using palm oil for back then? Because um, now it's primarily used for who knows, fillers and whatnot. Um, yeah, it, it, it's lots of types of oil, but any cooking oil. Um, yeah. uh, also, it was used, like whale oil was running out at that point, so... Palm oil was used, um, you know, soap. Is an, uh, you, you have to look up the use of yeah, palm oil. But, but rubber became, the thing about rubber is when it rains, you can't use it. You know, if you catch, you, you tap the tree, it goes into that ball. But if it rains in there, it's useless. So whereas palm oil, every few, I know because I own some palm oil plantations and, and rubber. Rubber is better money, but more irregularly. Palm oil, you know that every 20 days you're going to cut a certain amount down. Mm -hmm. So that that's really what opened this area up. Um, and then came, you know, more commerce, ships coming in, uh, monetizing it. Um, they started building roads within um, within the east part of the island. Yep. The west was still, you could, had to go by boat around to it. Um, I think they only built the road from Phuket Town over to Petong in the late 1960s. 70s and there were two people killed by tigers when they were doing it they used to have armed guards you know uh, against the tigers so you know the tiger temple on the top where they all beat their horn the tiger we're going as from you're going from katu from the, yep. the the form the go-kart and all that yeah, yeah yeah you go over the top and come down to patong yep and at the top everyone's beeping their horn 
There's a little temple there. Okay. That's called the Tiger Temple. I didn't know they were beep, they're beeping their horn. For well, no, it's, they all beep their horn at the top, and it's just in to okay. the Tiger Temple because they were um, two people killed there building the road over. And, you know, if you go into that temple, it's got all these tigers built in and stuff. Well, they're saying that I think the last tiger was killed, what, in the 70s here or something? Um, no, I, in the 90s. In the 90s? Uh, 92 or 93. Was that, did they, had, they had to get rid of them, or was it primarily it was the Chinese with the, you know, because the Chinese medicine, they love tiger. Yeah, yeah, Who yeah. Knows what they, um, well, I've got a picture in here of on Laguna. You play golf on yeah. the Laguna golf course. The last one shot here was in the, um, in Laguna was, uh, I believe, 1978. And I met the guy who'd shot him. He was the police officer in Chantelet. And the woman who helped me with my book knew him, and I went to Pangna and met him. But when I first moved here in 1998, I was going to take a house in Kamala. And there was an old Danish guy who I was going to had been developing a couple of houses. And he told me, oh, no, I know the guy who shot the last tiger, right? The last known tiger shot. And I, I went around to meet his family. And what had happened on that occasion was... Do you know that the, the hills between here and um, and Camelot, they're pretty high. Pretty, yep. I mean, they're, they're pretty, even today, there's still a lot of jungle up there. Um, and they were living up there, but because the um, they're Muslims in Camelot, they kept a lot of goats. And the tigers were coming down, and well, this tiger was coming down and stealing goats, right? And it was pissing off the locals. And more importantly, they had the, the new school built quite, it's further back inland up the valley. Yep. There's a new school there, and the kids are walking to school. I mean, talking 1993, you know, it wasn't <laughs> long ago. And the the goat pens were near the near the road, and they were worried that the tiger might take, so they decided to hunt it and kill it. And I met the guy who'd done it. I mean, he, he'd still be alive today. Um, or who the Danish guy told me had been the guy who had done and, it. And were they, they were also killing all the Panthers as well? And was that just more for protection? or um, At sport, at first sport. sport. The Brits is there any rumor that there could be something still out there? Or is it, it's pretty obvious now it's everything's gone. Yeah, look, even me, and I, I know this island very well because I've been running with the hash here and we go and run in the mountains. Even when I first came here, I saw, when I would go out and recce these runs by myself, you'd see a lot of snakes, cobras, you can still see them. But there were an enormous number of different types of civet cat. And some of them are as big as this sofa. Civic cats. Civic cats, right? Um, and there's one that I saw that I've never seen any animal like it. And it was like black, like a fox, with a, almost like a dog's nose. And I saw it, I heard it running on the leaves. And I looked, and there's this black, but it had a long, puffy tail. Mm. It was almost like a black fox, but it just went straight up a tree and ran right up the tree. And I go, what the fuck's that, right? Yeah. <laughs> and... I couldn't, it was a big height. There's still uncut natural trees. It disappeared up there. And I was like, damn, I was up by myself. Um, I mentioned it to um, Martin Carpenter, who was the honorary con the British honorary consul here at the time, who was running. I said, you know, I saw this weird animal. I went down to the fisheries department, land mammals and fisheries department to ask them, what was this animal I saw? I couldn't photograph it. Ah, they didn't care, right? They didn't. I said, this is an animal I've never seen, right? 
we had those mini mini macaque monkeys until recently where the the new hotel um, by the there used to be a huge armies of them macaque monkeys like this big mm-hmm. i don't think they live anywhere and they've all gone now and if they'll all be eaten i went up there the about eight months ago to show a friend these monkeys and they've all gone i said the locals where the monkey oh, by lao by lao i said well you ate them all <laughs> no no by lao i don't know where they they've eaten them or they've uh, but they've gone right these are national treasure or island treasures should i say anyway um, if you believe the British Honorary Consul, right, that um, Martin Carpenter, who was running the Blue Canyon Golf Course, he said, I've seen exactly the same thing. He said, I saw one bounding across the Blue Tree, you know, which has got forests on either side, Blue Canyon Golf Course, early one morning. The same thing, like a black fox. Um, no, so no, you, nobody knows nobody what it knows is. Nobody knows what it is. I never see any civet cats anymore. Yeah. And the other one was flying foxes, huge flying foxes, half the size of me. And you could tell when you're walking through the jungle because there'd be all this dust. Yeah. And you'd look up and they'd be in the trees. But these are like dogs hanging on the tree and then they'd take off. But they're only they're only way up in those mountains. Like even if you go to Packlock and then... Well, you know, I guess they move around a bit. The gibbons come down a bit. There are still wild gibbons up there, but not many. Mm. Are there tigers? I, I doubt it. There's not enough to, for them to eat them. And, and and most of the jungle's been penetrated. They need a long area to to work to work in. I reckon they've all gone. Yeah, and a lot of there's a lot of uh, uh, dirt biking trails out there that are you can basically take off from. I don't know, Camilla, Sarin, whatever the dam. Dirt biking, hiking, the, take it trail right running, down to. Um, you can follow that right down to Chelong. Yeah, you can follow yeah. the whole ridges all the way. I mean, yeah, I so literally know most of the trail after 25 years of running twice a week and. And setting trails, we know mo- that certainly the hashes of, we've never really seen, no one's seen a tiger. And there's literally every day of the week, there's up in the furthest parts, there's some hash house harrier laying a trail here. So, no, I think the tigers have gone, all the exotic animals have gone. We've still got elephants, but they're Who, all Who's important. living up in those mountains now? Because I have friends that go up there and they say they've been shot at before. Who knows? Yeah, they, they shot my dog. You heard about that one, didn't you? No, no, no. A couple of weeks ago, I was... I was walking with my dog on a trail with Justin and another guy. Yeah. And it was a Muslim goat farm. And my lovely white sort of shepherd dog just walking ahead, bang, shot in the mouth. Is it dead? Yeah, it killed him. So um, it was a story in the newspaper. I went okay. to it. I mean, it was, you know, my, she used to sleep with my daughter and my daughter loved yeah, it. Yeah. So they shot. But, yeah, they still shoot shoot animals up there. They like the... When you go to the non-hunting area opposite the school, they um, you see them all going hunting there, but, but there's not much left. If you go up there, there's nothing. There's not even mosquitoes because mm. there's nothing for the mosquitoes to feed on. You know, I mean, you see reptiles, you see yeah. frogs and snakes, and and spiders, loads of spiders. Uh, these orb spiders. Right? The they they. So they are they called like banana tree spiders or something? They're called orb orb. They yellow. look scary. They're huge. They're but they're like not, this apparently size. they're not dangerous. No, they're not. And apparently, even if they get on you, they don't bite. But if you no, get, I've had them on. I, I run well, not so much now, but I used to run shirtless, and because they they go between the, the rubber trees, trees yes, um, they're usually at about face height or chest yes. height. And if you're running, you don't see them. You run straight, you're oh, they're freaky on you, but no, they're no one. Yeah, I've they're seen just them, freaky. I've seen them close up, but they got these fangs on them that are massive. They never bite, and they're not venomous. And yeah, um, strange. 
Red, they're freaky. You yeah. get one on your face. It's like... Oh, <laughs> no, they're about the size of my hand. Yeah, yeah, or bigger. Oh, yeah, I've seen them. It's, it's quite but no, they're, le- they're smaller bodies, but long long yeah. legs. Um, anyway, so where are we getting to? Right, now, so the, here comes the big change, Thailand. Mm. Um, well, check, how are we on time? One hour? Oh, we're good, okay. Okay, he so... He always puts these notes here, and I forget which one. What do they represent, 30 minutes? 30. All right, got it now. One thirty, two. One hour. Okay. Um, yeah. So okay. So now we're going to Thailand. So yeah. we're, we're, Siam is under pressure from Britain, um, under pressure from France on the other side. Uh, the Germans have been booted out. Um, there is a middle class forming, and people are getting more and more pissed off with the king taking all the money um, and everything belonging to the king. Um, so, in at the same time, you know, you saw Franco. Um, take over Spain from the king. You saw um, Ataturk take over from the from the what do you call it? not what well, the king, the Turkish king, whatever he was called. You saw um, Hitler take over. You know, uh, at the same time, this guy, um, Wichit Songkran, who is a really nasty piece of work in my books. Right, um, he was a very proud Thai. He'd, he'd he'd been sent by the army and studied in France and I believe Britain. And there was a coup of the officers. What happened was the king went down to play golf at, um, where's the king's palace on the way to Hua Hin, right? Mm. So he was at his beach palace and the military moved in and took over all his royal positions in Bangkok. And they sent him an ultimatum to say, look, we... We don't want to live in an autocracy anymore. We want a parliament. We want the people to have some say in the running of this country. Um, so either accept that or, you know, we'll kill all the lords we've captured. Um, and so the king himself, this was the one after, I think he was Rama uh, 4, Rama 5. I forget which one. The, the son from the son from um, Chulalongkorn, or one of the sons who took over. Um, he was also quite a liberal king. He said, look, I'm happy to open up the country um, and have a parliament and listen to a parliament. And and he had bad eyes, and he did soon after leave to get eye surgery in Europe and never came back. Mm. Um, and so the army took over, and the army started running it and then you got these two factions in the army, three or four factions. There was a royalist faction who wanted to keep the king, and there was the more communist-led. Remember now, communism was a force in China. The communists were going there. The communists were starting in Vietnam, now in the 30s, pushing into the 40s. Um, and the, the more leftist by this guy, Pretty, sort of said, no, we want, we want um, um, what do you call it, without a king, we want to run it as a, like a democracy as a, or a, a democracy. At no, this no, point? Uh, what do you call a country without like um, Australia wants to be right now without the socialism? No, no, no. Um, ah, I forget. The we'll word. go back. To, yeah. Got up too early to watch the bus. Yeah, no anyway, so eventually um, there was some big fighting between the armies and this guy, um, Richard Tonkran came out on top and he got the air force behind him and he started killing off his opposition and he became the main head on show here. And he entirely changed Siamese society. He said, right, 
there will be no he was very anti-chinese he, he rather like hitler blamed the jews he blamed the chinese he said we don't want more chinese they're taking over this country they run all the business um all chinese uh, you either have to speak thai take a thai name there will be no more chinese schools you know remember in, there were a lot of chinese schools here so the chinese were learning chinese and you know um so cut the chinese schools cut all chinese dress right um so you couldn't wear pigtails and pajamas and dress like the chinese dress like even mm. in malaysia today they still dress like chinese no chinese signs on shops um everything has to be written in thai um and also we're going to modernize this country so you can't sit on the floor anymore to eat songtan um you can't dress as he also didn't like the muslims right he said you will become thais so they were malays now they're called thai thai muslims mm -hmm. but they were malays right um you can't wear sarongs um you have to dress basically like humphrey bogart right and there's pictures a woman should wear bobby socks and a you know a f like 1940s america um and that was you were arrested if you weren't dressed like that right so if you wore a triangular hat or something um you could be arrested you were put in prison um you had to get a certain hair you couldn't have long hair you had to have short hair that's why all the schools still had you had to um salute the flag every day the thai flag they made a new thai flag there was a the siamese flag was uh, was an elephant mm -hmm. in the middle of uh, a white background and he made no he made a new thai national flag he made it the nation of thai and thais he called it thailand uh they got rid of all the burmese they could um they they forced the chinese to, to speak thai and take thai names so that's why you see all these tantawit and all the really long names tend to be chinese taking names that tend to say like you know lucky gold bird or something um if you translate them yep um and the lordly chinese who he also wanted to butter up because you know he needed their money and stuff he would the king had already started giving them royal title names so um i can't remember some of them but some of the big families here have these royal thai names um and he really invested a lot of money into the army and the military became overwhelmingly powerful as they remain today right um so he was very lucky because at this point in the 30s japan invaded china and japan for its war it needed rubber china didn't have rubber right um and it wanted to get access to southeast asia for the oil in indonesia and for the rubber to run its war machine right the there were rubber trees in the philippines the americans were there there were rubber trees in malaysia the brits were there indonesians were there in indochina the french were there and there were a lot of sanctions put on japan for its br brutal war in in china um and then you start seeing 1938 39 hitler's going crazy right um and war breaks out in europe um and so suddenly the the europeans were on their back foot uh in asia because they had to fight in europe they couldn't uh the the um the japanese are coming in well at this point. they they didn't know that at that point we're talking 1939 1940 the beginning was, the of ja the, japanese yeah. only started in 40 december 41 so um but everyone knew that then they made the axis partnership 
the Americans, the Brits, they all knew that Japan was going to come, was going to expand and attack. So they all wanted people, the Allies wanted people in Songkran on their side. So they were giving him all the weapons he wanted. Meanwhile, he was going to the Japanese and saying, look, we're the only other independent country. You know, you're a fascist. You're a fascistic country. You know, you're joining with Hitler and Mussolini and, and all of them. And I, like, we're a military government. We're independent Asians. We should be Asian brothers and free. And the Japanese started taking over all the business. They started sending down people, you know, um, selling all the matches and all the toys and all the spy. And they started trying to buy all the rubber from Thailand. It was the only place they could get rubber. So there was a whole period then when the the expats who were here, the foreigners who were still, you know, all the tin mines were being run by um, British expatriates or Dutch expatriates. because they um, And there were a lot of China, Japanese coming down as spies and, and Japanese dentists and Japanese, the Japanese started taking over. But their time here, like of control of the Japanese coming in, it was still quite brief. Yeah, but, but they started really showing up in the 30s, the Japanese, because they came a dominant economy. So they started giving these really um, sweetheart deals to the Thais. So meanwhile, the Allies, it's a very strategic position Thailand has. It's the mm. crossroads of Asia. Yeah. So if Siam or if Thailand, if people in Songkran joined the Allies, they could stop the Japanese from coming south, right? If he joined with the Japanese, they could basically get attacked Britain all over, so um, or the British colonies mm -hmm. all over, and attack the French. And remember the Vichy France by now. Hitler had taken France, so Vichy France had also become a right-wing... It was under the control of Vichy France now, and they were basically powerless. So what does people in Songkran do? He goes, right, I'm going to go to war with, with Vietnam, right? With Vichy France. I don't know if you know about this war. But um, Thais had been so humiliated by the French stealing land off them just because they were stronger that now that they were weak, this is quite a normal Thai trait, right? If someone's weak, you kick them then. Um, he said, I'm declaring war on, on um, Vichy France. Um, so he was aligning more and more with the Japanese and, the, and Hitler and Mussolini. Um, and so he launched a war. The first few, first three or four days, he advanced quite far into Cambodia because Vichy France was cut off. They only had a few soldiers. All their people were in Japan. Um, and they had a very small fleet and not many tanks. But he'd been building up all this equipment, getting it from the Allies on the premise that it would fight against Japan. And he went and attacked to make Thailand... He wanted, again, to have recreate Siam, kind of like Putin's doing now. Mm -hmm. He wanted to make Siam as Thailand and make greater Thailand and unify all the Thai peoples, which was the Laos, who were Thais, the Cambodian side. Of, who, um, and so he had this vision and he got, it was Maha, the word is Thai, it means the great, the great Maha Thai, right? It's the, the large Thailand, a greater Thailand. The same as Hitler was making, you know, taking over Sudetenland and all that. He was mm -hmm. pouring these ideas. And he got in these, um, uh, he got in this, I forget his name again, a really good, um, like Joseph Goebbels, you know, he brought in a, a, a propaganda minister who started writing, uh, I forget his name, really clever stuff about the, the Thais were the greatest nation. They've never been conquered by anyone. 
they're they're greater than any other nation, almost like the Germanic, you know, Hitler's Germanic thing, copying all these ideas, throwing all the opposition into prison. Um, but still, the Allies wanted to deal with him because they needed him on their side, and the Japanese needed him. So he was in a very comfy position. So when he went to war with France, the Allies kind of backed off, and Japan helped him with with weapons. Mm-hmm. Um, but he didn't. The ties didn't do very well, and they they came to a standstill after about five days. How far did they get into Cambodia? Uh, you know, but two two or three days march. Mm. Um, they didn't get to Phnom Penh. They probably got over Ranupatet. And the the few French soldiers that were there held the overwhelming numbers of ties to a standstill. And then um, they took he took the fleet. The, the, he sent the Thai fleet, where he'd been developing a fleet. He sent them south. And the Vichy fleet, which was much older, but had a couple of bigger ships in it that had stayed here, um, they had a big naval battle for a morning off Komuk, you know, if um, Kochang and Komuk. Yep. And basically the French wiped out the Thai fleet in, I think, three hours. They destroyed all their ships. This in- information and in the, the, this part of the history of Thailand, when you did your research, was this easily accessible? Yeah, it's on Google. You can Google it. But I mean, and do, are the Thais, are they taught this as well or no, are they told something taught, else? No, they're told something else. Um, but it's on Google, and it's not illegal to read it or anything or say it. Yeah, and, and if you were to read this on Google, or like the Thai government clearly is not blocking this information. They're not blocking it. They're not, but they're not teaching it in school. Mm. Um, they're not. They just don't teach history because their recent history hasn't been a very proud history, put it that way. Um, their long history is a proud history, and they teach that, you know, mm-hmm. the, the Buddhism, the the king, the greatness of Thailand, they've never been conquered, all of that. And rightfully so. I mean, they they, they were a unique people. And they're a historic old people and a, a great people. But the, the time around people in Songkran, they were really sleazy. I mean, as Ro- I think Rosewood, the British ambassador, said, increasingly oily Richard Songkran, uh, I see Thailanders acting like a whore. You know, I mean... They were taking from the Japanese. They were taking because they were in a prime position to take. And what is their perspective on him as, as well as like in Thailand in general? Do, do they also look down on him or do they kind of just sweep it under the rug? Um, they more or less sweep it under the rug. But remember, he was the one who put the military in charge. The military controlled this country, right? Mm-hmm. The military brought the king back eventually and put him up. The king being there allows the military to be strong. The military take... You know, they own all the, you know, most of the banks. They own, the generals are the rich guys. Yeah. And he set them up. So you can't badmouth them too much. I mean, I'm already treading on toes now, right? Yeah. So, um, so the, um, when the Japanese increasingly were going to attack, when they did attack Pearl Harbor, they also attacked the the Philippine Islands, um, the two bases there, right? And Manila. Yep. At the same time, they attacked Hong Kong. The same day, they attacked Singapore, and they attacked the Aleutian Islands. On the same day, they also invaded Thailand, right? The Japanese all at once. Yeah, they did on the, whatever the date, the 21st of December, I think, 1941. The same date as, in fact, the first deaths in the Japanese war took place over Malaysia. There um, There was a huge fleet came down and moored in Cameron Bay in Vietnam. And they knew it was an invasion fleet. But they didn't know, the Allies, 
didn't know if they were going to go to the Philippines or if they were going to go to Malaysia or they were going to go to Thailand, right? And meanwhile, at the same time, people, Songkran is telling them, allies, we will fight to the death, to the Thais. We'll fight to the death and we'll support the allies. At the same time, he's writing documents to the Japanese, we will join with you, right? So he was completely strung out. And then the Japanese came. So how did he deal with this? He was warned they were coming. So he went to review the troops on the Cambodia border with, with the war that was going on there. Oh, it was a stalemate by then, brokered stalemate by Japan. They, they said, we will come in on the Thai side to, to Vichy France from China if you don't agree to give them this much. Mm-hmm. So he got his glory. He got, I bought, I got all this new land for, for Thailand. Um, so he disappeared for three days. Meanwhile, the Japanese arrived and the Thais fought them. They fought them. They landed, made nine landings. Um, they didn't land in Phuket, but they landed on the other side. And about nine hours later, they came here. But the Thais put up a really good fight, right? Um, so they fought them in um, Prachapkiri Khan, where uh, a big, big battles there, where they killed two, three hundred Japanese the first night. All down the peninsula, they fought, and, and they fought very bravely. And even the Boy Scouts, you know, because the Boy Scouts were, um, were being formed into, he'd already got the young tigers. He was training young kids to be, like, in the military, the same as Hitler was, same as Mussolini. Um, even the Boy Scouts went and fought with the Japanese, and they held off the Japanese, um, but a lot of people were getting killed. It was quite brutal fighting on the first Japanese landings here. Um, they came across the border from Cambodia. They started bombing in Bangkok. Um, and no one could reach Pee Win Songkran. And no one could make a decision without him. And no one knew which way he was going to go, right? Mm. He eventually came back to Bangkok after a day and a half. And he said, okay, we've decided. The commit, the, we've decided the Japanese are our friends. And we're going to let them have safe passage through Thailand to Malaysia, right? That's all they wanted. They, the Japanese gave him an ultimatum. You can fight us, you can give us free passage through, or you can join us. Mm-hmm. And he said, you know, the middle way, we'll give them free passage. So why did they want the passage to Malaysia to control that? Well, strait? so they could go down and attack Malaysia and get all the rubber and, and then take Singapore from the... From the yeah. And at the same time, the main British force here with the Prince of Wales, these two big battleships, they were sunk that night, um, the night of four days later. They were sunk because people hadn't realized it, was, it became an air war at sea. And these battleships were useless against dive bombers. Mm-hmm. So they were sunk. So the British had no real power anymore. Um, where, where were those ships sunk exactly? Off Kota Trenganu, off, off Malaysia. Okay. Um, on the east coast of Malaysia. Yeah. Um, and you know, sunk with thousands of people on them. Uh, they destroyed the Americans in, in, in the Philippines. They destroyed Pearl Harbor. So suddenly the Japanese were in control here. Now, in many ways, it was a good thing what he did um, by joining the Japanese because um, a bit later when he saw the Japanese pushing into Burma and took Singapore and then took Indonesia and Sumatra and got all the oil, he goes, well, hold on. The whites are gone. I'm going to join with the Japanese. So he allied with Japan and Germany, and he figured he could get more out of this. Mm-hmm. And a lot of the people here didn't want him to do that. They wanted him to stay neutral. 
But the Chinese here, remember, they hated the Japanese. They were killing all their relatives. Of course. But at the same time, you know, have you heard of the Sukjing massacres or when the Japanese got yeah, yeah, out, you know, killed in Singapore, killed in Penang, killed in Malaysia. Yeah. They never killed all the Chinese here. So the Japanese did come here. They took over the airfield because it's one of the most westerly airfields to covering the Indian Ocean. Um, they set up, they built another airfield um, down near Tech. And there was quite a big... Um, they used which, as, which airfield here? Well, they, they took the main airport. Well, there was no airfield. There like was the an airfield. Phuket Air Phuket. Airfield. Yeah, and yeah. they also built another airfield here in Manique somewhere. Mm. I don't know exactly where, but some older people tell me roughly where it was. Um, and then they started bringing their ships and using it as the port. Uh, again, they wanted tin, right? You need tin in an, in an army as well, right? You need to build ships. And overall, and then they, um, the Thais joined them and then attacked the British with the Japanese in Burma so that he could then try and win back the land that the British had been stealing from Siam, right? Mm -hmm. in Burma. And the British said, well, sorry. And, and that was when they came in and bombed the king's palace in Bangkok. So it's very... There was quite a lot of fighting went on here. The, the Thais try and keep quiet. Um, they just, it wasn't honorable what they did, right? So they, you know, they allowed the Japanese to build the death railways through so they could get through to Burma. But prior to that, just north of here, they, they, they made the first railway across the peninsula so the Japanese could come across. Um, Do you think they'll eventually, uh, like, dig out a straight through, let's say, I guess it would, I guess it would have to start up by like Renong right over to the, the There's west. There's been a east lot of talk coast. about it. Uh, they, they, uh, it started with De Lesseps, the guy who, after he built the Panama Canal. Because wouldn't that give Thailand so much more control over shipping? Yes. So what do you think would be stopping that? Is that, or is that even well, a topic that could be? Is, is it Singapore's influence that would just well, not no, allow initially, that? Initially, De Lesseps came and said he would cut through the. It's called the Kra Canal. Yeah, because you can be see you can see it come in, and uh, I mean, yeah, yeah, it goes it goes from um, it's called uh, Canton Canton. The port is just down below Colanta. Mm. You cut diagonally through there. It's the old ah, trade route, right? Yeah, and it comes out. You just cut through the mountains for a little bit, and you come out near uh, near the lakes on the other okay, side. Okay, I was thinking you wouldn't cut up near like Renong and across that way. No, that's yeah. the shortest land, bit, but it's high mountains. The mm -hmm. easiest way is that way. That's called the Kra Canal. It was talked about 10 years ago, even. Um, there was full of the papers here. Someone's they could fi finance it. Look, the Lesseps came to do it, first of all, and the British stopped the ties allowing him to do it. He had the funding to do it because the British wanted to control Singapore. They wanted to control the trade. That would just cut the legs off Singapore. Right. The Japanese proposed to do it in the 1930s. They said they would pay for the Kra Canal. And the British again said, no, you do that, we're invading. You know, it, that ain't happening. Um, after the war, there was talk about doing it as well, because it makes sense. Well, yeah. It makes a lot of sense. I mean, it's, a, it's, it's in terms of logistics, I mean, you got to go around yeah, this again, entire the British, the British have stopped it because yeah. they wanted to protect um, Singapore and Malaysia. Mm -hmm. They wanted their influence. But now that they're not so strong, um, it came up again about 10 years ago. There was a consortium of Japanese we're going to build the Kraken Canal because for Japan to cut to cut through there, it saves them going all the way around through exactly. the Straits of Malacca. They cut through there, cut through the Suez. You know, they need all their oil from 
it makes a lot of sense for the Japanese, but, um, you know, Singapore, Malaysia, I think they don't want it, or can you ever get that arranged here? You know, I mean, think of the corruption by, oh, who knows? Yeah, yeah. But it's it, on the cards. The drawings are all in place. The engineering's done. Absolutely. Um, and it could be done. Probably not in our lifetime. <laughs> I don't I prob- no, was that not mine, maybe yours, I'm a bit old, but who, no, it probably won't be done. Um, anyway, so there we go. So then, um, of course, the tide turns, the um, the Americans beat up the Japanese, the British start winning, they take them out of Burma, um, and then Pibun Songkran realizes he's back the wrong pony, and there was a lot of resistance here. Um, so uh, really good stories in the book, of because of, a lot of records were kept of the British submarines were coming up here, sinking all the shipping. When the Japanese did come here, there was something like 65 or 70 expats living here. They had the tennis club in Phuket Town. They had the golf. There wasn't a golf course here, but there was quite a few expats working in mines and the banks and stuff here. Um, and they all actually, there's a great, great getaway story. And I got the diary from the Australian officer who led them. And what they eventually did was they actually took their boat. They got on a one of the Chinese mining guys, let them use an old tin boat. Uh, because at that point, the Japanese had already reached Renong and they were flying. And they were just trying to get out of here. They were trying to get to Singapore, to yeah. safety. Um, and, or to Penang, but Penang had fallen by then. So they had to gather all the... And also up in Pangna, they had to gather all the um, expats together. They got them on a boat and a Chinese... Um, local Thai Chinese who supported the British, who'd been, he gave them their boat. Actually, he rented it at an extortionate price, right? Um, but he let them have it, which was a risk for him. And they actually sailed north to pick up some people near Ranong. And then they sailed and they got down to Singapore. And um, some of them, like the guy, whatever his name is, it's, it's all well covered in the book. He, he ended up working behind the Japanese lines in Burma and... Um, with the chindits and did some big damage. So there's some pretty interesting war stories amongst the expats. Okay, what happens after the war? The people um, rebel against... Um, um, they rebel against um, Richard Songkran. Yeah. Pretty, who's the leftist guy who was fighting him, get, comes in. And the Brits say, okay, screw this. We need reparations, right? You fought with them. You attacked us in Burma. We're going to take Phuket finally. You know, fuck you. you, you attacked us, you let him through, we were supporting you, you turned tail on us, you let him come through to Malaysia, you sunk or you confiscated all our mining equipment, right? Uh, we want reparations. Uh, you confiscated two or three ships that were here. They're all British goods. You, um, so we want Phuket Island as reparation and we'll do our tin mining again. Because 1945, 1940 was a huge year for tin mining. They had the big dredges here. They were smashing through the mining. The biggest year of tin production was 1940 here, just before the war, because um, there was huge demand for tin, mm-hmm. and they were making huge money. The Thais tried to take over all these tin mines and everything when they kicked the British out. Um, the British came back and demanded reparations. They wanted the whole of Ireland. But the British were exhausted in the war. They were in debt to America, you know, part of the Marshall Plan. They had no weapons. They were borrowing all the American gear. And the Americans said, no, nah, no, no, no. We, we're not going to let them. Go. You can't take Phuket. We don't like colonialism, right? That was, you know, remember the, old, the, the principle of the Americans was 
because all their colonies were land-based, um, apart from Hawaii and then suddenly Puerto Rico and Philippines, they always made things, oh, you can't have overseas colonies. And as America got stronger, Britain and Europe had to pull back their colonies. Uh, you know, Ultimately, the Suez Crisis was the end of it. Mm-hmm. Um, so the Americans said, look, you've got no power here. We're going to take care of Thailand because we need it as a base to fight against communism, which was now spreading in China. It was in Russia. It was in China. They were looking at Vietnam. It was already in Laos, right? And so they said, and the British said, well, like in Japan, destroy the military. Uh, the Americans agreed. They remember, they t- destroyed the military industrial complex. Get rid of all the people. Put them all in jail. War, you know, uh, the Americans. But they would not do it in Thailand because they needed the Thai military to help them fight. Remember, there were communists in Thailand, a lot of communists. There were communists in the northern, in Malay states, mm-hmm. right? The communist problem that the British had. And the Americans said, no, we can work with the military. We know they're a bunch of cunts. We know they're corrupt. We know everything, but we can work with them. Um, and the military then got their power. They invited the king back, who'd been banished to Europe, the new king who just died, who was a great king, I must say. Um, laterally, right? Laterally, mm-hmm. he, took the, he was a great king. Um, he came back. Well, his brother came back first. His brother was shot. You know the, about that story. Um, it's a mystery who did it. They reckon it was two palace guards who were affiliated with the communists. Um, was the king a puppet of the military at first? Or was he independent? Uh, I don't even want to go into all that. No. that that's, don't, don't go there. No. Um, but ultimately, he turned out to be a great king for the country. Um so the military, but the military were in control. The military were then funded to hell by the, like the only budget that is never disclosed here is the military budget. So whatever the government gets, they can give as much money to the military can take. Mm-hmm. And it's not disclosed. So you know, who knows? You know, the, the king's income is not always fully disclosed and nor is the military budget. Everything else, it works normally. But when you have massive outgoings like that, um, so the Americans, as the Vietnam War got worse and worse, now we're talking into the 50s and particularly the 60s, they supported the hell out of Thailand, right? And they supported the military. And as being a strategic, at least, base or jump off to well, get you into... you know, remember the domino theory. Yes. You know, if, if, if Vietnam fall, you know, Laos fallen, Cambodia will fall, Thailand will fall next, the commies in Malaysia, the British were fighting the... Yeah. They'll fall. The Burmese had communist... There are a lot of communists in the... Car- and China will just take over Southeast Asia. So the bastion against it was Thailand, and the bastion was the Thai military. So the Americans allowed them to remain strong, um, and they funded them, and they did everything. So it became then a de facto American colony, right? Mm. I mean, I'm, I'm exaggerating there, but America controlled it. And, and this they, is when the, the the army is showing up in Pattaya. Yeah, and, and, then, and there was... Democracy, no, the army controlled. And still today, you don't get a fair vote here, right? The king and the, the party and military get most of the votes, right? Allocated mm. seats. You can vote for the rest. Go ahead. Um, and that's why they so much didn't like Taksin. Well, I didn't like Taksin because he was a corrupt crook, but he was fighting on behalf of the majority of the people. Mm-hmm. Um, and they were getting power. And, and look, anyone in power here puts their nose in the trough and sucks it dry for a few years. But Taksin overdid it, right? And so the military had to kick him out. 
Then his sister came, and then they kick him out. The military still run the place. There's whatever you say, they still run it. Um, and whether the king is in coats with the military or not is another question. We won't go to. Yeah, here. you probably don't want but that. The military, the military, us. and the, the police. Uh, you know, they they've still got the power. So yeah, there was a lot of revolutions. There was a lot of mm -hmm. student demonstrations, uh, and then they were saying it's communists, and they put it down harshly. Um, generally, it's all. But generally, they're just trying to keep communism out of Thailand so that this domino effect doesn't trickle down to Singapore. Well, that was yeah previously, but that's not the question now. I mean, mm. it's not. No, it's not. It's not. It's that Thailand's not going to be communist. At which point did um like. Thailand become Thailand in terms of like the the, the name Thailand as its country well, that, that, and, I think and it the was defining forty one the defining and the defining borders like between uh, let's just say Laos and Thailand because because okay. these borders are obviously they're all carved by uh, the Mekong or mountains like for example yeah well what happened was that the borders on the east side with Cambodia and have been set by treaties between Indochina and, you know, they used to go all the, to the Annamite Mountains. It was all Thailand, Laos and eastern Cambodia. The French, very cheekily, bullyingly, just took that off them. And they fought. There were, there were fights where the Siamese were fighting in the 1870s against the French. Um, they lost, right, because they didn't have the technology. As as um, Chulalongkorn said, he said, you know, even if we found the biggest gold mine in this country and I had all the money in the world, I couldn't buy weapons because the Western countries won't sell them to me, right? Mm. So I'm left with this. I either swim up the river with the alligator, meaning the French, or swim out to sea and cling on to the whale, meaning go with the Brits. Mm-hmm. And he said, look, the British, to my mind, have got more land than they can do. They know what to do with. And they've always been reasonably fair in their dealings with people compared to the French. So that's why he generally aligned Siam with the British. Mm -hmm. And the British at the same time said to him, if you align with us, we will stop the Germans and the French from stealing more or the Russians or the Chinese. We will protect you, but you do what we said. That was the original thing. By the end of the Second World War, it was the Britons weren't strong enough, and the Americans were, and the Americans then protected them. So they've been protected, but they've also been good diplomats. Mm -hmm. Anyway, look, we're coming near to the yeah, end. Yeah, we must, we must, hour and a half? Oh, perfect. Okay, well, I'll just, just finish quickly. But yeah. in its Americanization, more and more troops came here um, for R&R, &R, right, in Bangkok. And as I say, then you got the backpackering thing starting... And Is that's like the 70s, 60s, the 70s, 70s. 70s, people started coming. They learned of this little island. You could get magic mushroom pancakes. You could get yeah, this, yeah. that. Go. And it slowly became more and more a tourist area. And um, Thai Airways eventually joined the Thai International with Thai Domestic, so you could fly straight down here. And it's been a slow evolution ever since of, um, of a, turning into a tourist island. And away from mining. Now, why did they stop the mining? They stopped the mining because they mined out most of the good areas, right? And the tourists are arriving. You don't want these massive... Yeah, so the first the first big Chinese family was the hotel, the one in Phuket town with a bowling ring in it. The um, They own the, what's it, the Phuket City Hotel. Um, 
that was a big Thai family, and they were the first to go, we're building a hotel, and apparently all the other mining bosses go, are you crazy? You just dig the ground and sell it for more. He goes, I can see this is coming to an end. Tourism's where to go. And so um, they made a move and turned it more and more into a tourist place. We covered some of this last yeah. week. Yeah. Uh, and that's how we end up today. And um, it's just going from strength to strength to strength. And the whole internet world and the internet economy. And as a quality place to live, it's bar none, I think. Um, Absolutely. I mean, if, if you're not... Well, it just got everything here. It's got everything. Yeah, there's no better place in South. And, and as you get it. more and more accessibility through, you know, I mean, this could be beaming to, you know, Alaska. It could be booming to Antarctica yeah. in two minutes. And you can be flying out of here direct to, you know, 50 places. Yeah, there's nothing. I've, I've lived in Southeast Asia long enough. There's no, there's no, for living, this is the best hub. I mean. I think so, yeah. Where else? The, and well, it's still pretty free here. You can, it's quite you can, free. It's, you, you, no one bothers you. Just leave me alone. Bali's a nightmare. I mean, these <laughs> places, I mean, you can't, you leave the airport and you're in bumper-to-bumper -bumper motorcycle traffic. Here, it's, you, you get off, it's, yeah, it's free. It's easy to get around. Um, okay, we're just about to wrap it up. Uh, I, I, get, I had one question in the back of my head. Those, those giant houses you see on the highway, so, like, if you were to go up to the Heron's Monument and turn or turn right, like going into Phuket Town, and then on the left, there's a massive house with yeah. a gate. Who owns these houses, or that one? Are well, I know, I know that owner, but he, they, they're they're Thai uh, Chinese families. Oh, is it all like I was wondering if they're they're related? Like, re, are they involved in the political side? Is is, is this come from yeah, old yeah. money back in the day? Yeah. yeah. Are, are you well, allowed no, to talk about that or? Yeah, no, no, it's not because everyone knows that these houses. There's another one also on the the bypass road to Central. There's oh, there's many in Phuket Town. These are these are mansions, Chinese mansions that were built by the rich tin miners. There's a load, a loads of them. If you look up the back streets, they're beautiful buildings. They're Huge. beautiful. Um, they're all coming from Penang style, Penang architects, um, and they all really started forming in 1915, up until about 1940 when. This was the biggest tin mining center of the world, and there was huge money being made here, and there was banking, and they had that sort of money. What they did with their extra money was they went and bought land and put rubber trees on it, right? Now, what the hell has happened to land here since? You know, the, there are families who own 10,000 rye, right? Can you imagine that it's gone from 50 baht a rye to 10 million baht a rye, you know, or 100 million if you're on... These can't, they are so rich here, these people. So... They're kind of keeping to their heritage. It's the same as old Phuket Town. When I first came here, it was a shithole, right? It was dirty. There was phone wires everywhere. They've taken the phone wires down. They're proud of their heritage. They're making them into nice coffee shops. They're doing them up. It's like Penang. It's like anywhere proud of, anywhere getting rich and proud of their heritage. And this is one reason why I get so frustrated that they just ignore their history. You know, we should have a proper museum here. I mean, I'm looking at it as a commercial business. I was. I'm not now, but I was as a commercial business. A museum is a, a real good event. You know, you take the family, you do tour trips, you can do many things, show movies, you know, they can smelt tin or whatever, make an interactive event and, and find mm -hmm. the old fort. But they're not taught about their history properly. They don't know it properly. Um the Chinese know their Chinese history well, and they show that, right? They, they show that a lot now in Phuket Town, and it's good to see. Mm -hmm. But um, the Thais tend, I don't know why they don't, they're not, they only talk about certain aspects of their history. I think a lot of it is 
not they're not proud of. Well, maybe there's also there's better ways to spend your energy to make money in Phuket than on a museum where no, I'm not talking about me. I'm just talking about their general oh, okay. pride. I mean, if you come to any Thai, you say, "Do you know about the?" You know, they'll say, "Well, Phuket's always been Thai." You know, well, it hasn't. It actually became a majority Thai island in about 1950s because people in Songkran didn't allow the Chinese to come anymore. So suddenly the workers in the t- were people from Isan. Mm-hmm. So, you know, that's the other big population center where they need jobs. And they're the ones still coming today and populating this island. So, you know, two out of every three Thais you meet here is from Isan. And, yeah. and one out of every five is from Phuket. Um but no, the Phuket people are great. I mean, the Thai people are great. You know they're great. Um, some of the government officers are a bit off, but um, as a people, they're great people. Friendly, nice, yeah, easygoing. Um, and it's really good to see them getting rich and enjoying their heritage in Phuket town. Well, I think that's that's a positive note to end this on. Um, uh, what we'll, I guess what we'll finally do is we'll kick it back to you and um, let, let people know again where they can find the book. Well, we've talked about it, and we'll, we'll probably chat about it again if we uh, can do an audible uh, uh, audible version, audio version as well, sure, maybe I'll on, on Amazon. And um, also, if you want to tell anyone if, if they want to contact you to find your 10-beggar club, and you can explain all that on that camera there. Or And uh, you can grab your book, too, if you want to give it a... Yeah, I'm not going to bring 10-bagger club. It's oh, okay, okay. You can look up 10-bagger club if you want. That's an investment thing I do now. Yeah, that's something... Um, I guess that's on... Uh, if people want to show up to the crypto meetup, do we want to talk No, about that's... It? Well, that's another thing. Okay, we'll, we'll keep that... We'll, that we'll keep that separate for another time. Okay. Uh, this is... Uh, it's kind of... Can you see it on the... Well, a lot of people are listening on Spotify as well, or Apple. You can see Okay, it. this is the book. It, it's actually weighs over a kilo. Um... I, you know, a thousand baht. Look, the best place to buy it, and I'm going to help my friend out here is... And bring um, your mic down a bit. The best place to buy it is um, in Drinks & Co. in um, Boat Ju- Avenue. Yep. Uh, easy to find. Um, Justin, and they're there. Lady Pie sells it as well. Um, it, it, they used to be in the Thai bookshops, um, Asia Books, all that, but it just got so complicated dealing with them. I would say uh, there's nowhere in the south at the moment I'm selling it, but um, it used to be at one. Um, you take either either contact me um, through the thing or it's cmackay100 at gmail.com, um, M-A-C-K-A-Y, or go to Drinks & Co. In, um, yeah, we'll make it easy. Just go to Drinks & Co. at Boat Avenue yeah. um, and... Grab a few bottles of wine and a book. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> go. go to sleep. Okay. Uh, uh, that wraps it all. Uh, thanks a lot, Colin. I think this time we have we have the full story of, of, yeah. of the history of Phuket. Last time I had to fly to Bangkok, so we rushed oh, yeah. the end. But I think we, we've really dove into the details. If there's uh, any questions in the comments, just let us know. Um, if you're a dickhead in the comments, fuck off. Okay, that's it. <laughs> <laughs>